All right. Thank you. Let's see. Look at all this awkwardness going on. Okay. So, thanks for coming. Um, how are we doing? Woo! <laughs> Spring break. All right. So, <laughs> so we're back. We're back um, from RUF Fall Conference in Tuxedo, North Carolina. Formal. Um, and I'm happy to report that the conference lived up to all of our expectations. Absolutely. Um, this is the most important one. Amputation looks like it sounds. Middle Earth. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like something out of J.R. Tolkien? Yeah. He's alive. He lives in western North Carolina. <laughs> saw him. I saw him. He looked like Gandalf from a distance. Okay. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Sid Druin, uh, and my day job is not comedy. I'm the campus minister at RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at Davidson College. Um, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the students here at Davidson College and also the college itself. So let me tell you a little bit more about RUF. RUF is for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the fraternity guy or the eating house woman, and the fiercely independent lover of the meal plan. Both. Uh, for the in-season athlete who spends two hours powerlifting, and for the nunner who spends two hours power napping. And or if exists for those who think that God is so clear, as a star so clear, he's been dead for years, and those who think that God rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. We hope you feel welcome. Um, we at RUF hope to get to know you, and we hope that you get to know RUF, which is way more than me. Um, so if you've been around RUF for a while, welcome back. And if this is your first time, welcome for the first time. Um, we're glad that everyone's here. So um, I just, during a really nice, another awkward transition, I walked back and put the sign-ups back there. So if you're interested in getting on the email list to kind of get better informed about events coming up or large groups, feel free to put your name down. If you put your name down already, feel free not to put your name down. Um, also, we have a Facebook group, Davidson RUF. Uh, that's another great way to get connected. Um, we're glad you're here. We hope you come back again. But I also want to tell you about kind of ways that we can dig deeper into community in RUF. Um, RUF is trying to build a community together where... Um, where we, we serve the campus together in the name of Jesus. And what we're trying to do uh, in that regard is small groups become very important. Getting to know people on a smaller basis and gathering around the scripture and wrestling out loud is really important to us. So there's some great options on your song sheet on the back if you want to look at that. Um, I know some of you are already involved. And here's the thing that Lauren mentioned. Um, so... We want to kind of give people an opportunity, if you've been around RUF for a while and you want to kind of help direct or guide this ship a little bit more, there's a thing called ministry teams. And what that means is that there, there are different teams of people that kind of help us to do what we do on campus. And I think there's a sign-up somewhere. I think it'll be on the back at the end. But basically, uh, there are about five teams, I think. So there's a music team that helps lead music. Uh, and I'm just going to have you raise your hand if I say your name. So, Bethany, Becca, and Jessica, could you raise your hand? Okay, they're all in a row. That's pretty easy to find them. Um, so, if you're interested in talking to them, talk to them, please, or sign up either way. Um, large group team is where uh, you kind of help this whole thing happen. I know it looks really uncomplicated, 
but talk to Nicole. It's a, it's a piece of work. So, could you raise your hand, Nicole? All right. So, she helps kind of run that. Come talk to her. There's lots of things involved. Um, service team is where we organize and lead service projects. We do a, a few each semester. If Ellie, could you raise your hand? All right. So, talk to Ellie if you're interested in helping with that. Um, we have a fellowship and outreach team. This is kind of the, the social events coordinators. So if you're on the, uh, Lauren and Wade and Megan, can you raise your hands? Look for them. Okay. And then finally, there's a growth and grace team, which is perhaps the most ambiguously named team. Uh, but it does have really nice alliteration for those of you who are English majors. Um, so it's small groups, uh, one-on-ones, and prayer groups and gatherings is what they kind of do. And so talk to John, Maggie, and Grace. Could you just raise your hand? That'd be awesome. Great. Oh, that was real enthusiastic. Some, I saw some half raises. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to grow grace. All right, so <laughs> if you're interested in helping out with any of these, you can sign up in the back or talk to any of those people that raise their hand, or talk to me, for that matter, or Juliana, our intern. So uh, this semester, in a large group, we're not primarily making announcements. We're primarily studying the scripture. And in particular, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, which is in the New Testament. Uh, which is the last third of your Bible. The title and theme for our study of Colossians is, What If Jesus Was Actually Enough? Like, what if he's actually enough? Um, And our passage tonight is going to, again, address a lot of what that means. I keep trying to kind of come back to that theme every week and what we actually talk about um, in our messages. But uh, let me kind of summarize a little bit about the title or the theme. Christianity is not primarily about what we do. I said this last week, I'll say it again. It's fundamentally about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for all of creation and for us. So I just I think some of us need to really, this is going to be a real challenging uh, time together to kind of reconfigure how we think about Christianity and how we think about the Bible and Jesus. So let me kind of talk about the passage I'm doing tonight is intricately linked to the passage of the last week. I actually split a old sermon in half. So um, let me talk a little bit about what we did last week so we can get to this week. Um, We saw how Jesus is at the center of the universe, uh, and we saw that by looking at the way that he created and sustains all things. Okay, We talked about what that means, and I think the takeaway was that the universe is bursting with meaning because of Jesus' creation, and it's what's called his providence, that it's his sustaining. Um, This this week we're going to look at um, what, how Jesus is spiritually at the center of the universe. We're going to look at the way in which he is reconciling those who believe in him with themselves, with other people, and with the universe. And so that's really kind of what, where we're going tonight. Um, and so with this in mind, um, would you turn your Bibles to Colossians, if you have one, or your song sheet to the back? We're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. If you're brave enough to have brought a Bible, um, or, or mindful enough remembering to do that, uh, it's after Philippians and before First Thessalonians. Remember my little, go past Romans. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Okay, So that's where we are, right in that little nice spot. So I'm going to have you stand for the reading of scripture, um, so we can pay some full attention. Okay. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18. Through 23. And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this time that we get to study your word, the time that we get to take a time out on um, whatever activities we were up to beforehand. Um, And I pray that you'd make this time fruitful, that you would multiply this time in our hearts, that you, O Father, would be um, at the center of our thoughts, and not in a way that removes everything else, but in a way that holds everything else together. We pray, Father, that you would take our studies, you'd take our activities, you'd take our friendships, you'd take our families, you take um, our work, and that you would reconcile all these things to you, Jesus. And Jesus, I pray in your name that you would send your spirit among us to dwell in our hearts. You've promised that you've done that, and we pray that you would fill us with that spirit so that we might hear the words that we need to hear and that you would drive away the tiredness and the distraction and perhaps even the doubts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I've got an experiment for you. Yeah? So I want, if you're, especially if you're an English major, I want you to go up to a professor this next week and ask them who might be a famous contemporary writer. Just name a few. Okay? Most famous contemporary writers. My guess is if you do this, you're going to hear one name from each and every one of them. A guy named David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace. He, not only will they say he's one of the best writers of the generation, they'll say he's one of the best thinkers of the generation. Um, late 20th and early 21st century. And though, although his 1,079-page nerd brick of a book called Infinite Jest is not a bestseller, Many people think that it changed the course of literature in America and in the world into a whole different direction. Wallace even won the MacArthur Genius Grant, which means that some people at least thought that he was very smart okay, and gave him a half a million dollars to do whatever he wanted with because he was so smart. Okay? Anyway, I think it's amazing that the same author, David Foster Wallace, when he was asked by an interviewer why he wrote the books that he wrote, why he chose to write essays, why he did what he did for a living, he wrote, he told him he didn't write for world peace, he didn't write for societal deconstruction, he didn't write for self-amusement in some sort of detached, ironic way, but rather Wallace wrote books, he wrote articles so that his readers would become less lonely. He wrote books so his readers would become less lonely. Wallace wrote to ease, or in his words, give CPR to the loneliness, the alienation that we all feel inside. In an interview, Wallace elaborates on this loneliness as the chief characteristic of living in our time. He says, there's something particularly sad about it, something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. 
It's more like a stomach-level sadness. And I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. And it manifests itself in a kind of lostness. Wallace thinks it's really personal to explain his point further. He says, I was a white, upper-middle-class, obscenely well-educated, and had way more career success than I had legitimately hoped for, and was sort of still adrift. A lot of my friends were in the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs, others were unbelievable workaholics, and some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. I think if we're honest here tonight for just a moment, if we stop our lives long enough for our emotions to catch back up with ourselves, I think we'll feel this loneliness. It's a loneliness that marriage, that romance can't fix. I mean, can you see the 20 different ways the same thing, that sad feeling of alienation is played out in all of our different lives? It's like Wallace was actually a Davidson. And he just kind of observed what was going on. He went to Belt Computer Lab, and he observed the 24-hour-a-day typing that happens there. Or he went down the hill on a Wednesday night, and he saw students trying their best to forget their work and numb their loneliness with cases of Milwaukee Best, Beer Pong, and the next hookup. This subtle, deep sense of loneliness is in all of our stomachs, though, isn't it? No matter who we are. It's in the way that we perfect ourselves to death, eat our insecurities, starve our fears, and find sexual escape and political certainty on the Internet. At the bottom of all of these behaviors is what Wallace describes as a great type of hole or emptiness falling through us and continuing to fall and never hitting the floor. We see a similar description of the human condition in our passage tonight. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, there God through Paul calls humankind alienated. Alienated. But in these same verses, we see a cure more potent than mere literature, or straight A's, or numbing out, or perfectionism. Paul directs our attention to Jesus, who turns our loneliness into reconciliation. A God-man who is in his body of flesh, and by his death, gives eternal relationship of peace and gladness to those who embrace him in return. In a sentence, Colossians 1, verses 18 through 23 say this. By the power of his death, Jesus is transforming our loneliness and evil into belonging and and holiness. By his power of his death, Jesus is transforming our loneliness and evil into belonging and holiness. And we get to believe this about Jesus every single day. That's what the passage is asking us to look at and to think about. And this passage shows us Jesus' transformational love, his transformational power of reconciliation in three stages. Three. I don't know if you guys have been following. That's the first time I've done a three-point sermon in a long time. Okay. (laughs) I promise you it won't be as long as you think it's going to be. Okay. Verses 18 through 21, we learn why reconciliation is accomplished. Or why we're alienated and why we need reconciliation. Okay? We see in verses 22 through 23 primarily 
how reconciliation is accomplished. That is, reconciliation is in the body of Jesus' flesh and by his death. And then third and finally, we learn about the surprising scope and the surprising shape of reconciliation applied. Okay? Here we see reconciliation is bigger and more daily than we think. Okay? So, we're going to march through this passage and see the why and the how of reconciliation accomplished, and then we're going to kind of take a two-point takeaway about how uh, reconciliation is applied to our lives. So let's begin with why reconciliation is accomplished in verses 18 through 21. As I said earlier, this is really a piece of verses 15 through 17 that I've sort of artificially separated. It comes on the heels of it. And those three preceding verses are talking about creating and sustaining the universe, that Jesus does these things. And he does them to give the universe meaning and power and purpose. But as hard as it is for some of us to connect the meaning of the universe with some Jewish guy 2,000 years ago in Palestine, okay, the passage says, it's, we, I'm actually going to ask you something harder. I'm going to actually think that's not enough to believe that the world is livable and lovable. The, the point of this passage is actually to even ask us uh, to consider that we have problems that run even deeper than whether we like the universe. According to this passage, we are by nature alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And our natural evil and our natural hostilities cause us to feel the sadness of alienation. That's what the passage is proposing. Now, let's be real for a second. A lot of you, when I said that, internally grimaced or flinched or just looked away and thought about something else. Okay? Okay? Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it, when we hear evil applied to us? We think, well, I know some people who are evil. They like to torture puppies. And they like to push little children into rush hour traffic. Those are evil people. But I'm a good person. I don't do any of those stuff. But those things, those stuff. Um, But the Bible invites us, okay, to go below our easy black and white cultural definitions of good and evil. If you read the Bible seriously for a prolonged period of time, you can't help but to start to lift up the floorboards of your heart. And I can't help but to lift up the floorboards of my heart and to see the secret frustrations and twisted desires that lurk therein. There and then in our hearts we come across what Paul means by evil and the Bible means by sin. And it's this. Sin is any failure to love God and to love others. Sin is any failure to love God and to love others. And these failures stem, according to this passage, from centering our lives on ourselves and not on God. Okay? So, we talked about the divine sin. We said it's not loving others, not loving God, failing to do that. And then we said that that comes from self-centeredness. And let me quote... Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, I think he puts it really beautifully. He says, sin is building your identity on anything other than God. Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. And what I think he means by this is that sin is self-centeredness, and self-centeredness leads to alienation, because alienation is, by definition, separation from God and from others by our own self-preoccupation. Okay? A lot of shuns there. But do you you follow me? Okay. At first blush, this seems really unfair. Okay? 
you can sit there and say, Sid, everybody's born a bit selfish, aren't they? I mean, that means everyone's born evil. And I would say, the passage would say, verse 21 would say, yes, that's Paul's point. Everyone's born evil. Okay? And Paul takes another more implicit, more subtle approach to a second point. God is actually asking us to love blamelessly, to love contrary to our human nature, to love God and to love neighbor in an unselfish, against-the-grain way. How in the world, what in the world, what's the deal? What in the world, right? What is God doing? I love the way that poet-theologian Frederick Buechner puts this. If you haven't heard me quote Buechner, welcome to the semester. Okay, because you're going to hear him a lot. Okay, he has this beautiful knee-jerk rejection he kind of articulates for us. God is asking us, in Buechner's words, to love our neighbors when an intelligent fourth grader could tell you that the way to get ahead in the world is to beat your neighbors to the draw every chance you get. Okay? But God is really asking us this for our own good so that we don't self-destruct. That's why he's asking us to do this. Again, in Beekner's words, Paul is passionate that in the long run, it is such worldly wisdom as the intelligent fourth graders that is foolish. And it's such sublime foolishness of God that is ultimately wise. But maybe you're not convinced. That's fair. Perhaps you doubt that self-centeredness is really a problem. And Paul is just straight up out of the line when he equates self-centeredness with evil. Maybe that's where you're coming from. Maybe you've been a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian, but that's your posture. Well, of all people, the same writer that I referenced earlier, David Foster Wallace, would be the first person to disagree with you and agree with Paul. And he does it in a commencement address in 2005 at Kenyon College. Let me explain. I love that Wallace does this to recent college graduates and all of their extended family gathered to to come and celebrate graduation. He tells them this. This is his best advice for life. If you live for yourself or you live for something that you want, your life will blow up. If you live for yourself or you live for something that you want, your life is going to blow up. Let me quote him. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. Pretty much anything else that you worship aside from God will eat you alive. Wallace, who's no friend of Christianity, continues, If you worship money and things, you'll never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What you probably don't know is that the center of David Foster Wallace's life was being seen as smart. And most of his books and most of his friendships were plagued with intellectual rivalry. And guess what? Wallace's desire 
to be seen as smart ate him alive. Less than three years after he gave that speech at Kenyon, Wallace was found dead in his apartment. He hung himself at age 46. He hung himself to cut off the circulation to his head, which he called his master. So what's the solution? How do we escape being eaten alive by ourselves and by the different pieces of our self-image that we worship? How do we, do we just try harder to love other people? Do we just kind of get busy willing ourselves into more willpower and self-discipline the Davidson way? The short answer is no. The longer answer occurs in verses 21 or 22 through 23. And it's the how of reconciliation. Point two. Reconciliation is accomplished by Jesus, the image of the invisible God, becoming a man, laying down his body of flesh by his death, and then becoming the firstborn resurrected from the dead. This is how we escape self-destruction, by believing in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The reconciliation, the God and others orientation that we so desperately think that we need, and this is what we desperately do need, is given to us by Jesus. At his bodily death, Jesus exchanged his selfless life for our selfish life. All we must do, according to verse 23, is to believe that Jesus lived and died for us, so that we might become blameless and above reproach. This is, by the way, the way that our loneliness gets eased. This is the way that we no longer have to run from thing to thing to stop thinking about ourselves and get some quiet and some peace. The real relationship with Jesus brings belonging. And belonging brings not just love, but feeling loved. And feeling loved in an ultimate satisfaction way leads to us loving others. All of our shame... The years stained spots of self-centeredness. The very real failures that we've experienced with real people, with real feelings, when we failed to love them. All of those things are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, David Foster Wallace, his writing and his life testified to this truth about Jesus' death. Wallace's friends, including Jonathan Franzen, noticed that he increasingly became crushed by the burden of his intelligence. He wins the genius grant and feels like he's not smart enough. Nothing satisfies. He feels the pressure to give his life meaning and and holiness by controlling his thought life, by turning the most frustrating and ordinary moments into something sacred and profound and meaningful. For instance, he thought that he could reimagine what he calls consumer hell. Okay? Consumer hell for, for David Foster Wallace was the checkout girl telling him, have a nice day in a voice that is absolute death. That's what he says. Wallace thought that he could rewrite her story in his head in such a compassionate way that perhaps he could love her. But Wallace's ultimate suicide at a young age demonstrates his failure to love, even to his own satisfaction, let alone God's satisfaction. 
You see, Wallace's suicide was not just the result of biochemical imbalance. It was also proof that even the most talented among us can't cure self-centeredness with self-effort. You can't cure self-centeredness with self-effort. No amount of papers or problem sets, no amount of community service, no amount of mental meditation and physical labor will make us finally and fully reconciled with people and with God. Only Jesus' perfect love, even unto death, only Jesus' blood frees us from ourselves and grants us the peace and gladness of God. It's an outside-in solution in an inside-out world. And it's crazy and it's difficult, and that's why it requires faith. And so let me, let me end with two surprising applications about redemption or reconciliation applied. First, verse 20, if you look with me there, Jesus' death wasn't just for you or for me. I love this. The Bible is not some personal love letter from God to you. Okay, Every you that we've read in the first chapter of Colossians is a you plural. It's you all. He's not writing to individuals. He's writing to a group. So let's remember that Jesus saves us as a church, verse 18. That he saves us as a, he reconciles us as a community. That we, we exist in and for community. And he does this, why? So that we don't get self-centered about reconciliation. Further, Jesus didn't just die for people who love the blood of his cross. He died for all of the creation. Okay? This is something that's totally radical. And I'm just going to put this in the most extreme way possible by quoting a guy named John Stone. Okay? Jesus died to save the trees. Okay? Jesus died to save the trees. Before you grimace, take that statement and divide it by four okay, for rhetorical effect. What he means there is that Jesus reconciles everything, the birds, the trees, the creation, to himself, whether it's, on hev- whether it's in heaven or on earth. He's making a new creation for God and for us. Look, second application that I'm done. Second surprising application, verse 23. There we see that faith, the decision to believe in Jesus, as a way to escape alienation and self-centeredness, faith is not a one-time deal. It's just not. Okay, Faith is not a spiritual hit-and-run accident. It's not a desperate one-night stand with Jesus. It's It's actually an everyday faith practice. Faith happens every single moment of the day. We wake up. We get hurt. We see beauty. We see pain. We go to bed. We must choose to believe in Jesus' reconciliation in those moments. I know I've quoted a, a ton of people tonight, but let me quote one more person, a guy named Francis Schaeffer. And let's hear what he has to say about faith. It's a beautiful way of putting that point. That's a good summary. This morning's faith will never do for this noon. The faith of this noon will never do for supper time. The faith of supper time will never do for the time of going to bed. The faith of midnight will never do for the next morning. Thank God for the reality for which we were created. A moment-by-moment communication with God himself. What Schaefer means here is what Paul is trying to get at in verse 23. 
A living and active faith requires us to face our doubts about evil and face our doubts about reconciliation and to believe in Jesus through them and in the midst of our doubts. Faith is stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel because it requires a moment-by-moment ability to believe, not in our ability to believe, but in Jesus' person and work. Look, at the end of the day, we do not have faith in our own faith. We have faith in Jesus. For he, not me, is the reconciler of all things by the blood of the cross. Look, I'm convinced that Jesus' love rescues us. It rescues us from self-centeredness, from our need to numb, from calorie counting, and even from self-salvation. I'm convinced that Jesus saves lives. He was the cure that David Foster Wallace was, was scrounging for in the dark of his life, even in all of his celebrity, but especially in his lostness and his aloneness. Jesus is the cure we need. He's a moment-by-moment cure that we can believe in together as a community. Would you pray with me? Father, um, there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, And I I pray that as we think about what we just heard, as we think about um, the story of your glory, the story of Jesus crucified on the cross and bringing reconciliation, Um, I just ask that you would move inside of us, that you would help us to believe uh, moment by moment and together as a community. We pray, Father, that your reconciliation would feel like belonging, would feel like love, and we pray that you, O Father, um, would be in the middle of our lives, the center of all things as we see them. And I pray, Father, that Jesus Christ and him crucified um, would be the would be a meaning and a relationship that we could stake our lives on. And we ask these things with your help and with your permission and with your power. In Jesus' name, amen.